Hey everybody, Eric from SuperQuester here. A few notes before we get started. As you might imagine, this episode is going to be full of spoilers, so watch out if you care about that sort of thing. And I have two quick corrections. First, I got the Kynes family tree a little mixed up. Ferula is not Stilgar's sister, though she was herself the daughter of the Siege Naib. And second, I claim Beastrabon's brother Fade was a failed Kwisatz Haderach. In fact, it was, of course, Fenring, not Fade, who was the failed Kwisatz Haderach. In my defense, these guys are all cousins. If any of that made sense to you, then you're going to love this week's episode of the podcast where we go way too deep on Dune. Hello, space fans, and welcome to another episode of the Supercluster Podcast. I'm Jamie Carrero, and I'm here with Tristan Dubin and Eric Collins. Hello, guys. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Jim. Thanks for being on. And we're here to discuss one of the legends in the history of sci-fi, Dune, one of the greatest examples of world building, technology exploration, gender dynamics, religion, politics, mysticism, and a whole lot more. Something that has made a huge impact on the world of sci-fi storytelling and futurism in general. So what we're going to explore is both the upcoming movie, the way that the story itself is in dialogue with reality, and the way it's evolved from a book in 1965 to a movie in 84 by David Lynch to a miniseries in 2000 to the upcoming movie by Denis Villeneuve. All right. So I think to get started, for people who might not be familiar with Dune, we should give them a little bit of an intro primer on it. So a fun way to do that might be for each of you to just tell me in as briefly as you can, what is Dune encapsulated? And whoever wants to go first can jump right in. Uh, Tristan, go ahead. Great, great question, Jamie. That's a that's a really it's a tough one to answer because Dune is so big. I guess the way I would describe it was imagine if you took a lot of acid and happened to already be a, a bit of a science nerd and you thought, well, what happens like 10,000 years later in the future of humanity? And then you went ahead and you wrote that whole history. And then you wrote the most critical moment where it all changed and where access to faster than light space travel was like finally possible. Oh, yeah. And then there's some stuff about worms in a sand planet. But that's that's to me is what Dune is really about. Got it. Eric, how's it for you? I guess, uh, well, this is not my quote, but I, I've seen this floating around online. I think it's kind of perfect. Somebody a while back said, Dune is like if Star Wars didn't care about you, which I think is like <laughs> it, it's pretty solid. Um, <laughs> Dune is opaque. It's, for me, as a lifelong science fiction fan, it, it was, until I read it, it was sort of like this thing that was hovering in the distance that I was kind of scared of. You know, it, it it seemed like the book that 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 adults read or something, you know? I was reading a lot of Asimov, yeah. all like sort of like the young adult stuff that we that we read, Martian Chronicles, that those kinds of things. And Dune just seemed like this unassailable like tome in the distance. And I actually I failed the first time trying to read it. I gave up. I think I gave up twice. And I know a lot of people have given up trying to get into Dune because it Yeah, it I think I tried to read it too young once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my actually my wife gave up the first time around and she's now almost done book six. So anybody oh, listening, yeah. if you've given up the first time around, I, I'm right there with you. It's sort of like it it's punishing and then all of a sudden it becomes it's almost like a door opens and then you finally understand where you are and then and then you're just along for the the most fully realized fictional world I've ever come across. 
Yeah, totally agree on that. I don't think I've ever read a fictional book that has just as much detail and actual like thought out mechanics as Dune has, even on a, a science level, on a politics level, on a social interaction level, character motivation, like it's, it's intense. Yeah. It's one of those books where you keep going back. I've read the first book over 20 times, like in my life, and I feel like I get something new from it every time I read it. Yeah, it's crazy. How old were you guys when you first read it? I was, well, the first time I tried to read it, I think I was 20. So definitely like old enough to have read it, but I just couldn't, I think I was so caught off guard by like, it just doesn't hold your hand. It like, again, it, it really, it really doesn't care about you. It's sort of aggressive in how unwilling it is to go easy on you as a reader. You have to know what you're in for. And then I, I think I, I, I dove back into it probably at like 25 or 26. And, and then, yeah, I, I, I read the full Frank Herbert saga and I've also done Dune, not as many times as you, Tristan, but I think I've done it three times. Yeah, I got the I, I I got the first book on my twelfth birthday from my mom, and she'd been she she's a huge Dune nerd along with my dad, and they'd kind of been prepping for me for it the entire time. And I I honestly I didn't struggle with it at all. I like kind of just became very very quickly obsessed with it. And then I think I read I think where I struggled was the fourth book, where hot hot take the fourth book is just trash, like really. <laughs> really like like a slog uh, oh you, you've just offended some very specific nerds out there uh, i mean it's like from from a, from a history book the fourth book to me is like a like really interesting history book but it's not a good book to read <laughs> um so these yeah. are I'm, I'm just gonna pause here for just a second because i think you're you're picking up some really interesting threads here that i want to follow up on but just to backtrack a little bit and and give people that baseline that, that we want to give, because I think both of your encapsulations are really interesting. But to kind of sum it up as briefly as, as I can, and please jump in and, and add things and correct me, because but by the way, for our listeners, both Tristan and Eric are far more far deeper Dune experts than I am. However, so I'll put it this way. Dune, the, the titular Dune is a planet essentially. It's that's like the common name that people call this planet Arrakis and Arrakis is the only place in the entire universe where you can get something called the spice. And if you've never heard of Dune, I'm sure you've still heard of the spice, even if only for the memes. Maybe you've heard the spice must flow because that's the key thing. Now, the spice is the central material in the Dune universe in the book. It's a drug that both makes you live longer, makes you look and feel younger, but also enhances your mental abilities. Aside from that, it gives you the ability to travel interdimensionally through space, to essentially do faster than light travel by folding space because of these beings that have been born in the spice and have so much spiciness that they can essentially look through the dimensions and navigate that way. So that's the background is there's this one planet. You have a multi-planetary interstellar government of all kinds of uh, feudalism and fiefdoms and emperors and things like that. But it all comes down to trying to control this spice. And the actual story of Dune is about a, uh, a family that has to control the planet that produces the spice and all the things that extend from that. But where it really gets interesting, and this is what both Tristan and Eric were alluding to, is it goes so deep into all the implications of what will happen if we were interplanetary? What would happen if just 10,000 years went by in human society? What would happen if there was a spice like the one they described? So that's essentially what we're looking at without going into the actual story of what Dune is about. Uh, so guys, tell me what I, what I left out and missed. 
So yeah, that's a great overview, Jamie. And when we talk about, you know, the saga or book four, the only thing I would add is there are there are six books in the original Dune saga. The first three you can almost think of as one book. They're a unbroken trilogy. And then book four is three thousand five hundred years later. And it jumps way into the future to uh, examine the fallout of book three. And then book five is another 1,500 years further on in the future. And book six follows directly after book five. So five and six are sort of one book. One, two, three, you can think of as one read. And then book four is this kind of pivotal outlier, which, yeah, Tristan calling it you know, his least favorite book. It's definitely the controversial one. A lot of Dune fans think four is the best book. I'm more on Tristan's side. I think it's it's interesting, but it doesn't really work. But it, it definitely is like the um, fulcrum point for the entire saga. It's you know it leads up to four, and then it then the rest of the universe follows before. Yeah, and that's also like that's not to say when I, I say I don't like four. Four has some really cool moments and like some defining moments of the Dune saga, but it's so content dense. I, I almost wonder if it would work better as like a, a historical anthology or something of Dune or, or, or something like that. And maybe they just skip to five and six, which are kind of like this sick sci-fi adventure romp through the, uh, the fallout of the entire early series. It's like the cool appendix for deep fans maybe is what it should have been rather than, you know, like the part of the Tolkien book that explains the whole language, but you don't really need that to yeah, understand Lord of the Rings. Totally. Totally. The Silmarillion. Yeah. That's, that's like book four. Yeah. So one of the things that I think has made Dune last so long and resonate with so many people, and, and you guys both started to already touch on this, is all of the aspects of culture, of life that get explored, developed, and taken to their perhaps cynical but logical ends in this environment. Everything from gender dynamics to the way that they handle the environment to economics to uh, government, all these kinds of things. So wherever we want to jump in, uh, I wonder if you guys want to just talk about some of the things it explores as the sort of natural outcome of humanity once we go to the cosmos and, and what happens as a result. I guess, you know, you use the word cynical, Jamie, and, and it really is, it's a dark vision of the future. You're, you're sort of dropped into it following this character, Paul, who's a, you know, a kind of prince of a royal family in a way, to, to dumb it way down. and. So, you know, from Paul's point of view, things are sort of okay. But you realize as the books move on that this is a this is a very bleak future. There are billions of humans scattered throughout the known galaxy on a number of planets that are only really hinted at. But we only see the the noble houses that control this spice. So it's a it's a very feudal empire. There's a tiny, tiny amount of people at the very top, and then there are unseen masses across the galaxy. And you sort of, as as the first book unfolds, you sort of get a sense for this as you meet the Fremen, who are these desert dwellers that are kind of put upon by the royal houses who just kind of tolerate them and, and really have no intention of sharing power with them. But yeah, Dune, you know, we can get further into things like you know, the, the sort of gender politics or the eugenics, but it's de- I don't think it's I don't think it's a vision of the future that anybody would want to aspire to. Yeah, it's definitely it's a cautionary tale about unchecked inequality 
and what might happen if our worst tendencies were allowed to unfold over the next 10,000 years. Yeah, it's it's a kind of interesting, especially if you think about the time when it was written, which is like the late 60s, which is when people were just starting to realize that like, oh, uh, environmental change is uh, coming and, and overconsumption is and scarcity are about to become much larger problems for the world. Uh, we're about to like get in ma- a massive for and anyone who's really paying attention to like international politics was realizing that like the Middle East was going to be the next point of, of global contention and access to a material that allowed for transportation would basically grow to define like every global conflict up until now. I mean, continue probably for the and probably will continue to do that in a lot of ways. Dune, while it predicts an extremely far, far bleak future you can already start to see some of the themes in Dune like happening in the real world. And I think that's why it's such a, such an interesting and iconic like series because it was kind of thinking so far ahead, but also kind of not at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned the time period. It's, you know, the, the first book was published in August of 1965. And so to put that in context, that's President Johnson. That's uh, the year Malcolm X was killed. That's Vietnam War. That's we haven't landed on the moon yet. So it's really huge social upheaval, and we don't yet have the hopefulness of this sort of world unifying scientific achievement. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I guess like a good entry point into Dune is thinking about the spice, because every single conflict in Dune centers around spice. It's just core to the story. And the reason why spice is so scarce gets revealed, I think in in book three is where we get the whole story of the sand plankton and how they become worms and how spice is a byproduct of worm birth. And because the worm's ecology or the ecology of Arrakis is the only place where worms exist and where they can produce that, it all becomes a fight over Arrakis. And because that it's such like it's only one planet, you know, because of that, these feudal houses all end up fighting over it and basically it becomes a kind of a trap for anyone who's in charge of running it because no one can essentially afford to let you do whatever you're you're going to do and and have total control over Arrakis, but they also need someone to manage that process and, and be deeply involved in the production of spice for the emperor. And so the emperor never wants to have his hands dirty with that. So he basically is just shuffling a bunch of these noble house leaders into the process of managing his spice production and then letting them kill each other off for the massive profits that they'd get as a result of of that. And the story focuses around the Harkonnens and the Atreides who our Harkonnens have just handed it off to the Atreides who just inherited it. And the whole planet is laden with Harkonnen assets that are are waiting to to strike. Yeah. And to extend that kind of Middle East oil metaphor, it's sort of like it's this resource rich place that these noble houses and then also there's something called the uh, Koam, which is a, a kind of like sort of like the Iron Bank. These aren't perfect one-to-one metaphors, but you could think of it that way in Game of Thrones. Uh, The reason why the noble houses are drawn to it is because of the resources, of course, but it inevitably destroys them, weakens them because of the nature of producing the spice, but also because the Fremen, the native population, resist them. So, you know, as a metaphor for the Middle East and oil and the ensuing wars of conflict over the last century... It works pretty well, but we should say it's it's not only, I don't think it can only be understood as a metaphor for oil because it, it has all these other properties. For sure. For example, it's addictive as a drug. 
And so many of the nobles in the Bene Gesserit, we should talk about the Bene Gesserit, they, they become addicted to the spice and it extends your lifespan. So there are characters in the Dune universe who live far longer than ordinary humans. And so they need the spice literally because their lives depend on it. And also it, the reason why it grants the ability to travel through space is because it grants a, a type of limited ability to see into the future. So the guild navigators who are plotting these wormholes can see into the future, know where all these interstellar objects will be, and that's how they can safely hold space. So it's, yeah, just as a as a brief side note to that, it, it refers to something classically known as the three body problem. That when you're trying to compute paths through space, once you have too many bodies to track, the math actually becomes too complex to solve for, and so there's no way to plot your course beyond this this certain point of complexity. That's kind of like very very quick back of the napkin, but so what what they can do is is completely surpass that by just looking at it like they observe now they observe the future as now so they don't have to do any math they don't have to do any astronomical calculations they can essentially just see what that uh, plotting a solution is but this is something that comes up a lot in sci-fi and in fact there is a a book titled just the three-body problem because it's such a common thing yeah and so so imagine you can start to imagine the value of this substance it it's the only way to travel through space. It's addictive. It extends your lifespan. It allows you to see into the future. And for the Bene Gesserit, the Bene Gesserit are this secret society of, it's an all, all female secret society of kind of super powered space ladies who have become intensely mentally and physically trained over the eons. And for them, it's also key to some of the rituals that they've devoted themselves to. So the spice is kind of everything. And for that reason, it's it's the singular commodity and currency in the empire. And that's why the planet Dune is so critically important. And when the book in this first movie opens, you're sort of like thrown into this changing of the guard where the current managers have been tossed out and this new small noble family is being thrown into the mix to make sure that spice production continues and the spice continues to flow. To kind of riff off the Bene Gesserit a little bit more, part their role in society that they've basically established for themselves is to be concubines to the hyper elite uh, noble house leaders. And initially, this seems like kind of weird. Like, why would they willingly do that? And it's because they have this belief in uh, something called the Kwisatz Haderach, which is essentially their messiah slash chosen one, this one, basically the only member of their order who will be a man. And they, they talk about when they take spice in extreme doses, they see this place where they can't go. It's sort of like, it's the same place that navigators go to, to a degree, but it's not, it's not quite exactly the same because um, a navigator doesn't have the same control or ability to, to really understand what he's seeing the way a Kwisatz Haderach would. But the entire goal of the Bene Gesserit is to is essentially a long-winded, multi-generational genetic breeding program to produce this ubermensch called the Kwisatz Haderach. And so basically, you, you get to this, this being of, of ultimate power, and he can see the now like a navigator, uh, but he also like has the sort of like insight and physical uh, training of a Bene Gesserit. And the way that they hypothetically are getting to this is they take lots and lots of spice and turn their awareness in on themselves and then alter their genetic makeup 
and the genetic makeup of the children of the nobles that they are concubined to, to basically create a perfect set of genes that they'll eventually be able to turn into the Kwisatz So that's kind of like their role. And, and, and effectively, because they've, they've all been taught these like supernatural methods of social control and mnemonic code words. And then there's also a physical martial art called the weirding way where they use their control over spice to like warp time and human perception. It's pretty deep. It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, there's so, there's so many details that we can run with about, about this story. I think one thing that, that it really highlights well is that if we, I mean, 10,000 years when you think, well, sorry, I think it's in the year 10,000 something. So it would be 8,000 years, but anything like that, it really highlights the awareness of the author of how much society can just completely transform over and over and over again until its perversions are carried into just total normalcy, you know? So like the Dune world has all of these things that you learn are normal as you read the story and it forces you to speculate how realistic all of them are. Uh, which brings me to the to the next thing I want to ask you guys is just to back up a little bit and relate this to reality now. How real do you think this is? These are all speculations on some level in the Dune books. When we look at things like a potential Mars settlement, a world where the Elon Musks and Jeff Bezoses become this nobility and they form this settlement wholly owned by a corporation, do you think that's the beginning of this kind of feudalism? And do you think that the mass resources from things like you know, unexplored planets or asteroid mining could lead to this kind of thing. How do you react to the Dune book as a person who lives in 2021? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, unfortunately, it's it's totally possible. Something, something like Dune. And maybe it's worth fleshing out just very briefly. We can sketch out the rest of how the world is ordered. So we talked about the Bene Gesserit. They're, they're the secret society of women who on the surface are kind of subservient. But as you read in the books, you, you understand that they're actually pulling the strings. They're sort of the source of true power in the universe. And the, the kind of overt power is the empire. So there's a Padisha emperor that presides over a series of noble houses. Each noble house presides over a planet in the Imperium. There's Koam, which I said is sort of like the Iron Bank. It's, it's the kind of corporate economic sphere mostly populated by directorship seats, which are themselves composed of the Landstrat. And then there's a couple factions on different planets. There's the Benny Lalax, which are sort of the mutant geneticists of the Empire. There's the Ixians, who sort of keep technology alive. Most technology that relates to artificial intelligence in Dune is, is banned due to something called the Butlerian Jihad, where basically... In the distant past, thinking machines took over. There was a war, and now you cannot create computers that have AI. And so, just side note, also super resonant. <laughs> like everyone's worried about that today, and the same people flying to space, like Elon Musk, are warning us about the overpowered AI. But, but please continue. Yeah, totally. And so, when Dune picks up, you you have this strange distant future where the first thing you'll notice is like there's no computers, there's no internet, there's no robots, but technology manifests in all these other different dimensions. And so you start to think about a future where you have these intense taboo prohibitions on certain types of technology that are fiercely guarded. So all of the noble houses have atomics, and there is a prohibition against atomic weapons. If any of the noble houses were to use one, the others would immediately destroy them. 
But there's also this prohibition against thinking machines. So if anybody was found to be in control of artificial intelligence, they would be destroyed. So everyone is in this kind of mutually assured destruction, like very tense truce where, yeah, you have the, this, this intense inequality all based around this singular resource, which can only be found on this one planet. And all of these factions are in like a very precarious balance. So like, so do I think that the world could move in that direction? Yeah. Like I wish, I, I wish that wasn't the case, but yeah, yeah. It, it seems like on, on, our, on our world, definitely inequality is, is trending in a dangerous direction and power is accumulated via economic influence. And so, yeah, Dune, Dune does seem to be this, this, this one logical endpoint where humanity has become both skewed, but then, but then also like, you know, it's like the, it's the crystallization, like I said earlier, of our worst impulses. Yeah. Eric, you forgot the most important true to life and powerful faction in the Dune Dune franchise. And that's, uh, that's the spacing guild, which is the, in every like important political scene in Dune where serious decisions are getting made that affect the future of, of the species, this, there's a spacing guild representative there. And like all of this basically is at the beck and call of the spacing guild because they're the only ones who know how to make navigators. They're the only ones who have ships that allow navigator transport. And it's also like, I think what we're seeing happen right now in the modern space exploration era, we're seeing companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin pop up. That's going to be the spacing guild. If, if the only difference between them and and the spacing guild is, you know, rocket fuel isn't rare, you know, multifaceted drug. Yeah. And there's, the Spacing Guild as a as a kind of neutral party is interesting. There, there are these elements that are openly feuding. For example, the Noble Houses. To get back to the books in the upcoming movie, you're dropped into House Atreides, and they're they're at war with House Harkonnen. And there's this amazing part in the book that's it's just a, a little. It's one of these tiny. Frank Herbert's very good at. He'll drop these like half sentences that seem like they're inconsequential, but they can be very mind-blowing. And my favorite one about the Spacing Guild is there's a moment where House Atreides and Paul and his family are on their way to Arrakis. And so they purchased a ticket on a Guild Highliner, which is a gigantic, gigantic planet-sized ship. And they're loading their all of their, their own spaceships, their army, their family, the inhabitants of their planet, millions of people. Basically, they're moving their entire civilization onto this highliner to move to Arrakis. And Paul says something like, I wonder where the Harkonnens are. And somebody says to him, well, they might be on this highliner with us. And like, that's such an insane thought that like the guild are so neutral that they might be transporting these mortal enemies on the same ship. And they would never know it because the ship is so massive and and no one is allowed to cross those boundaries. So yeah, again, there are these these factions within factions. Some of them are openly in conflict. Some of them are kind of more behind the scenes pulling the strings. Dude, the other part of that scene I love is where Paul is like, oh, I'm going to go try and see a navigator. And his dad freaks out. Later, is like, you on no circumstances will you go attempt to see a navigator. We'll lose all our spacing privileges. That that would be the worst thing you could possibly do. Like yeah. the, just kind of speaking to the, the the power of the guild, like if a noble is that concerned about them. It makes me really impressed by, I guess, the prescience of Frank Herbert that he was predicting all these kinds of behaviors. Because even though he's looking so far into the future, you know, even just, I guess, we're 60 something years ahead of that. 
we can see all of these things starting to kind of become true, that the control of technology has created these pseudo fiefdoms, you know, like the top companies in the world are these tech companies that control our access to the hive mind. And some of those top companies are also the ones who control our access to orbit. And I think that there, there's something really amazing about that. Also, Frank Herbert is writing this book at a time when, from a computing standpoint, pocket calculators won't exist for at least another five years. Uh, com any computer of any kind is the size of a room or two, maybe the whole floor of a building. And he's talking about the idea that thinking machines might eventually become banned. And so I think that that, that shows some real foresight on his part. In starting to think about the new film, let's talk about first, if you know, the differences between the book and the original film. Have both of you seen that original Lynch film? Yeah, yeah I saw it years ago. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you recall it enough to, to draw some parallels between the two, but are there any relevant ones that you think really affect these kinds of big world building themes that we've been exploring? Yeah, I watched the Lynch film recently and <laughs> I have to say, so the first time I saw it, I'm like, this is the worst thing ever made. And like that, that's what most people think about it. If you go back to it, anticipating being totally disappointed, it's actually pretty good. <laughs> the main problem I have with the Lynch film is the treatment of the Benny Gesserit, specifically the, the weirding way. So Frank Herbert does a good job, even as elements of his book become fantastical and, and trying to ground them in science or at least in physical phenomena. So the Bene Gesserit, like Tristan mentioned, these women have all these unique powers, but it's not, it's not sort of pure magic. For example, the voice is something where they can force people to obey their commands. And the way that this is described is they're modulating their voice on frequencies that sort of go, that bypass the frontal lobe and kind of like attack directly at like a lower lizard brain and the person who hears them. And so the voice is, when you're affected by the voice, it's described as you obey them before you register hearing them. So if a Benny Gesserit shouts at you to, to sit down, you're in the chair before you can understand the fact that she's even said anything to you. So I always thought that was, that was interesting, this idea of like, it's not magic. It's what if humans had utter control over their internal metabolisms in their bodies and their minds, what could they achieve? There are some other things that Benny Gesserit can do. Like for example, in the later books, it's revealed that they, if they wanted to, they could live forever because they can simply choose to reverse the aging process because they have complete control over their bodies. So the problem with the Lynch movie is when he gets to the Benny Gesserit, he invents this like gun box thing that he gives them. Yeah, so the, the weirding device or whatever it's called. Device. So instead of them, instead of them being these highly trained future women who have total control over every muscle in their body, instead he just like gives them a gun and they just like shoot people. And uh, yeah, that's super disappointing. But yeah. if you forgive him the weirding box, I think a lot of the other decisions that he makes are actually like pretty solid, definitely worth the watch. Especially aesthetic decisions like that movie just looks so rad. It's not the way I imagined Dune, honestly, the way like I think the closest aesthetically to the way I, I've imagined Dune are some of the the concepts from Mobius, uh, which are like kind of like 
the ridiculous court clothing of nobles in a medieval era, but with a sort of like futuristic sci-fi bent. The sort of like black, slick, rubber, gross, textural world that Lynch imagined was at least like really compelling, if not like it totally one-to-one to how I thought about it. Yeah, I always felt that the movie, well, look, I, I actually saw the movie before I read the book because uh, the movie was so famous. It's this very weird film. And being into film, I just wanted to see it for the for the creature effects and the photographic effects and all the things that were done, because it is really amazing just as a, as a piece of creation, even apart from the uh, differences between the book and the movie. But once I read the book, I felt like the movie didn't go far enough that 8,000 years from now, fashion would not be so relatable. It would not be so close to, you know, like the movie has these sort of right from the beginning when you see them, oh, I forget that scene, but like when the navigator comes in and he talks to the guy, the Atreides guy, who's like really high up, he's wearing stuff that almost looks like 19th century English, you know, ship captains or something. And I feel like if we go that far, it should be completely bizarre. It should not make sense to me the way people are dressing and acting, you know, and maybe that there's like some allowance to be made for it has to be understandable to an audience. But if anything, it felt like it was not far enough. I think the most true to the books aesthetically and like story wise I've seen is the sci-fi miniseries that was made in the 2000s. It's by no means like good filmmaking. It's, it's pretty terrible. There's, I think, a couple of decent performances in there. Like William Hurt is Duke Leto and he's pretty good. And uh, James McAvoy plays Leto II in the third movie, which is, or miniseries, which is Paul's son. Uh, and he's great. But other than that, it's a very faithful translation, both aesthetically and, and narratively. But it has like really crappy 2000s VFX. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think within the Dune community, that's, that's a pretty common opinion, just in from what I, I read online. Whenever it comes up, people have a pretty solid opinion of it. it it's a, it's a made-for-TV movie. It hasn't aged that well, but it doesn't really get anything wrong. It's, it's, yeah. like, it's pretty solid. If you want a cliff notes, you can. I would recommend watching that over, over the Lynch film. But also, it doesn't go far enough. The Lynch film, by the way, does have a ridiculous cast. There's a lot of really interesting uh, people that you'll see in there, including Max von Sydow and Patrick Stewart, of all people. But uh, it was not much of a success. And Sting. Yep. Sting, Sting is, is in there. Yep. Yep. Totally. So everybody has been watching with great apprehension at Denis Villeneuve's new adaptation of the Dune film of the Dune story to a film. And this was originally going to be released last year, but due to the pandemic, it has been delayed and is now scheduled for October of 2021. Let's all react to the differences between that and the original film, between that and the book. How do both of you feel, just gut reactions right now, about that upcoming adaptation? And also, you know, give me a reaction to Denis Villeneuve uh, as a filmmaker as it relates to that. Yeah, I maybe I want to start with all the things I like about it because there's a lot of stuff I don't <laughs> like so far. Yeah, same. <laughs> yeah, I got some spicy takes. But Denis is a filmmaker. I can't think of a better person to take this on. I, I like essentially everything he's done. I love Blade Runner. And if you had asked me before the first trailer came out, who's the perfect director to make Dune? That probably would have been my pick. So, and by the way, any criticism that I have so far, let me say, like, I'm going to watch the movie the second it drops. And I hope to hop back on the pod with egg on my face. But 
there are some there are some things that I find a little worrying of what we know so far. But but yeah, like it, just his his sort of filmography and his undeniable talent, he, he's incredible. Yeah, I got to echo almost everything Eric said. When I heard it was going to be Denis Villeneuve directing Dune, I I freaked the fuck out. Like I was I was so happy. And then I got sort of less and less excited as I heard more about the project and saw some of the casting choices and some of the aesthetic decisions. I don't know. I, I really like am, want to reserve judgment on it because I, I want to see it and I'm sure like it'll, it'll capture it well. But the first thing that tripped out before or that, that kind of like made me a little bit suspect of the project was that it was a movie. And I personally think based on the the previous like successes and failures of the other Doom film projects that the only way to do dune is in a tv series i don't think that a two-hour movie format does it justice at all and it's kind of like one of those deep long engaging worlds that you want to like really spend time in and i think that that extended format would be perfect for it but yeah so, so just, i just want to say that before i get into like i mean a- no I, I gotta say that that is an interesting take because we do live in a time and this was certainly not true uh until very very recently but we live in a time where their production quality both from writing acting directing lighting vfx of extended series or even limited run series equals feature films i mean i don't think a lot of people would argue with that that things that come out of hbo and netflix and amazon and all of those can frequently at least approach the quality of something like a Lord of the Rings or, or, you know, Avatar or Avengers or something like that, at least to level of satisfaction. But it does give you the ability to develop characters and stories in a way a feature film simply cannot contain. So, you know, you may very well be right for something, you know, a story of this scale. I mean, the first book is a thousand pages long and it's split up into three sub books. Yeah, we should say this movie will not cover the first book. It's we know it's this will at least be two movies, and I don't think it's possible to do it in two. So there have been yeah. some rumors about it being three. So I totally agree with you, Tristan. But it, they're not even suggesting they're going to make one movie. For doing yeah, it. for sure. I totally think that it's good that they're doing that, and that gave me a little bit more confidence when I heard of that. Yeah, there is just to be clear that Villeneuve himself has stated, and you know we all know that Hollywood is complex, but he has stated that he would not have agreed to make the movie if it was only going to be one movie. He just he flat out stated at the beginning of this project that it's too complex, there's too much, we got to do two. So economics aside, it's pretty much guaranteed that they're going to do at least one more. It hasn't been greenlit, but I'm pretty confident. Which we should make our first set of predictions here. Where do you think the first movie is going to end, Tristan? Well, if I was going to do it, I'd have it end. There's two ways it could end. One, it just ends at the end of like sub book one, which is Paul and Jessica end up with the Fremen in the desert. But it's like just before he fights Jameis, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I was going to end it, like the first movie, if you had to split it up into two, I think that first, that fight with Jameis would actually be a pretty, pretty great place to end it. I think you're right. I think that is where it was. Yeah. Yeah. I, if I had to do it, I would end the first movie earlier. I think, so, you know, after the Duke dies and they're all fleeing the castle and you see Duncan for the last time and he, he screams yeah. at them to run and then he closes the door and there's like a hail of swords. I would end it right there. And then, Hell yeah. <laughs> and then book two, I would do, Paul and Jessica in the desert. In book three, I would do the revenge of the Atreides, culminating in the death of Harkonnen. I think that would be a 
a solid trilogy. But we know they're going to go beyond that because even in the trailer, we see we see Paul and Jessica in the desert. So I think you're right. I think it ends with them being ambushed by the Fremen. Yeah. And like Paul sort of like encountering them and accepting his mantle as their effective leader eventually. Yeah, I think that's what they're going to do. Jamie, what do you, what do you, how close are you to, when was the last time you read it? I can't remember what you said. Oh, no, I actually, I didn't uh, tell it yet. No, I, I approached the Dune book two times in my life and, and it actually really resonated when you guys were saying earlier about how it seems like the book that adults read. Cause it always seemed, I remember being very young and reading a lot of like approach of, you know, a lot of Asimov and other kind of like no name sci-fi and stuff that was kind of written for young adults or something like that. And occasionally someone would give me a CJ Cherry or like a real sci-fi book. And that was the one where it's like, oh yeah, that book is really thick. And it's on like my uncle's bookshelf. And I don't know if I can read it. And I think I was way too young, you know, like 11 or some silliness and picked it up and started reading it and put it down because I couldn't do it. But when I actually did read it, I was probably around 14, 15. And that that's it. I haven't really returned to it. I ended up seeing the film shortly before I read it. Like I saw the film and then was like, oh, I got to where did this come from? And then picked up the book and made it through. So since then, my only revisits have been through the lens of watching its like cultural impact. And then when they announced the Villeneuve thing, however many years ago that has been now. Um, oh, and also the the almost make that they did, because that was a whole big story. You know, I don't yeah. know if we want we don't have probably time to go on that whole U-turn. But uh, yeah, there was another the Jaren out Jared. Sorry, Jared what's Rocky. the name? Jadorowski's oh, Jadorowski. Dune. Yeah, we, we mentioned yeah. it briefly. That was the one that Mobius and the other guy, H.R. Geiger. Uh, yeah, exactly. On. Who, again, would have been a really interesting vision. But I remember that picking up my interest again, and I kind of read some synopses to remind myself. But to answer your question, Eric, I don't I don't know that I have, I'm close enough to it now to pick a, a specific story point. But I did, you know, I did just do some background research here, and they are also developing a TV series that might come out. So there may be actually some more story that is injected into this, you know, reimagining. That's cool. I haven't heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. We should say just briefly for anybody listening, there's a documentary called Yodorowsky's Dune, which is, it's just about a failed project, which would have been insane. Yeah. Pink Floyd was going to do the soundtrack. The movie was going to be 14 hours long single film Geiger and a bunch of other artists were brought on to do character designs, including Mobius. By the way, that's HR Geiger of alien fame who designed the the Xenomorph and all the sets and stuff for alien. Yeah. The thing that I really took away from Yodorowsky's Dune was that movie failed, but that movie is the reason we got alien because the team that was assembled to make Yodorowsky's Dune stuck together. And when the script for alien popped up, they, got the band back together and they made alien. So aliens, one of these movies where you might always in the back of your mind as a film fan have wondered like, why is it so like, if you think about science fiction of that era, then all of a sudden alien happens and it, it feels like it comes from another dimension or something. Yeah. Well, that's the reason because Yodorowsky, this insane artist assembled this team of artists and they kind of accidentally made alien. and, And that's how that all shook out. That's amazing. And that actually that feels so right, because I remember I've watched Alien probably 58,000 times at this point. But I always remember that the first time I watched it, the feeling when they, you know, they they wake up and then they go down and land on the planet. Right. And then they walk into that room, which you learn later in other crappy movies of Alien is the control room. 
and there's like the skeleton, the sort of mummified alien in some kind of seat. I just remember this feeling of how do you come up with something that's so unusual, that's so mm-hmm. not of anything, not of this world. And it really makes sense what you just explained, Eric, because so much of that is just like no one like the design direction comes from some other place. It's so, I mean, Alien is the perfect title for a thing like that, both in, in literal and metaphor, but just absolutely incredible stuff. And it really makes sense that it was designed for something else. Maybe that's the way. If you want to make something re- feel really strange, give the artist the wrong brief. One of the hardest things with adapting any book to the screen is is choosing the actors who are going to play these characters that have taken on such life in people's imagination. So how do you feel about the casting of the new Dune movie? Which, which, by the way, just as a side note, it's very strange to talk about a big blockbuster movie that's been in the can for more than a year and just exists. Just no one has seen it. It's like in a vault somewhere. Anyway, how do you feel about the casting of the new film? Yeah, I, ha- I have it right in front of me. So I'm like 50-50. We can go through it. Tristan, maybe. So Timothy Chalamet is Paul. What do you think? Stoked on that. It's like almost exactly how I imagine Paul. He he's like never like described as like a super big dude. He's a, he's a kind of always described as like rangy and lithe, and he's also a teenager. And Timothy Chalamet just kind of looks like kind of how I always imagined Paul. So uh, I'm stoked on that one. He's also yeah. a good actor. So agreed, ten for ten. If you've seen the the King on Netflix, that's a I think that that's like a good indication of what him as Paul would feel like. Zendaya for Johnny. Checks out. Yeah, same. How about Rebecca Ferguson for Lady Jessica? Yeah, I felt fine about that too. I, I don't. I haven't seen anything else with her in it. I, I assume she's good. She seems regal in the yeah. right way. What about Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho? Not into that. Jason Momoa is like good at physical combat in movies, but Duncan Idaho just kind of doesn't seem like a big jacked dude in my mind. He's like kind of like a, a weird live trained killer. And also kind of like has, I, th- I think, especially in the later books, I don't know if Jason Momoa really has the range as an actor to to sort of get the depth of that character. Totally agree. This was, yeah. the, first, this was the first moment where diehard Dune fans, so stoked about this movie. Oh my God, Denise making it. This is going to be amazing. Everything's like every, every piece of news is amazing. And then I read Jason Momoa, Duncan Idaho, and just thought, huh. Dude. I'm going to counterpoint that a little bit and kind of go back on exactly what I just said. Denis Villeneuve has a really like weird special director power, I guess, that is getting incredible performances out of actors that are kind of like traditionally viewed as meatheads. Dave Bautista in Blade Runner absolutely like for me with his stole the show and the way that Denis, I guess, set that up. Maybe that gives me a little bit of faith for for Momoa as, as Idaho. Sure. Well, look, there's, I I will say this. I have always thought of Momoa as a really fun actor who's essentially a model. And, you know, it's like, hey, we need a model to look like some kind of, you know, sculpted human. And that's great. And when he wants to play a little bit of comedy or a little bit of this and that, that's great. And I've, I've seen some of his smaller movies where he tries to be a little bit dramatic and it does fall apart. But to Tristan's point, I always think back to the fact that Vin Diesel was in Saving Private Ryan. Vin Diesel had major dramatic roles in Save It Private Ryan. He dies dramatically on screen for Spielberg. And you don't even think about the fact that he is, as you so lovingly put, kind of a meathead actor who's just, you know, in the role. And so I fully believe in the ability of a director to use somebody for a purpose. Sure. I I agree with all that. I will say, 
if you're going to roll the dice, maybe don't do it on Duncan Idaho because he's the only character who's in all six books. He yeah. gets continually brought back to life for 5,000 years. So it better work. If they're going to make 30 Dune movies and take this thing through to its completion, Duncan Idaho is the <laughs> I think they can just pull a fresh prince like when they recast his mom and just not yeah. mention it. Well, you mentioned <laughs> Batista. He's next up on my list here as Beast or Bond. How do you feel about that? Uh, I think that's great. Stoked on that. Yeah, I'm stoked on that. And I want to use this as an opportunity to nerd out on my favorite fan theory, which is Easter Bond is a failed Kwisatz Haderach. And so mm. uh, basically the, the way this theory goes, so we should explain Easter Bond. Easter Bond is part of House Harkonnen. He is described in the books as kind of a stupid brute, but that's always through the lens of the main villain of the stories, which is um, the Baron. And so the Baron is kind of like always talking about him as if he's not there right in front of him, talking about how Beast is stupid and, you know, only good for, you know, murdering people. Or like subjugating a planet. Yeah. And so he's, he's put in charge of Arrakis at one point by the Baron and Baron tells him, you know, you need to like squeeze these people, like show them who's in, who's in control of the situation. But I was reading an interesting article by a fan few years ago where they were reading some of the, the subtext of the Beast Bond scenes. And there's all these moments where the Baron is sort of belittling Beast Bond, but then Beast Bond will sort of just say some small thing that gives the Baron pause. There's this, this one moment in particular where the Baron is describing his plan to basically convert this Imperial officer into a traitor. And the Baron sort of criticizes the plan because it will anger the emperor. And this catches the the Baron off guard because that's not the kind of insight you'd think that, that like a, a brute figure would have. And this happens again and again. And even there's like a, there's a moment where Lady Jessica later in the first book says that Raban is trying to sue for peace, which isn't the kind of thing you would think that like a sociopathic brutish figure would do. And Beast Raban is the older brother of Fade Rutha. And Fade Ruth that we find out is definitely a failed Quetzalcoatlach. So the Bene Gesserit have this thousand generation breeding program to create this superhuman. And it's kind of culminating in the first Dune book with a couple different figures. It ends up being Paul, but it, the Bene Gesserit didn't know who it would be. They sort of, they knew they had put the right genes in place and everyone in this family is, in, is inbred. And so they're like, yeah, it, it could be any one of these cousins. And we find out it, it was almost Fade and Beast is Fade's brother. So there's kind of like a Dark Horse fan theory that Beast Bond is actually one of the kind of genius characters behind the scenes that could himself have been a Quetzalcoatlach, but he's always sort of presented as kind of like an, an idiot oaf brute, which we're going way deep, but I really love that fan theory. Dude, I fully support that fan theory and it like ties into other things about there's other things about Beast Raban's character. Like I, I think support it. Like his obsession with the worms. Dude's like hunts worms for sport and is like obsessed with breaking them down to their component parts. He wants a, a Chris knife so badly. He wants all the stuff that Paul has, almost as if he's like motivated by this unknown drive to to essentially be Paul. Yeah, totally agree. And so, yeah, I bring all that up partly because I think Dave Batista is perfectly cast as Beast Bond. 
for the yeah. for the reasons you guys brought up earlier about well specifically Blade Runner, where he's this kind of gigantic hulking figure who you can tell obviously has a lot of depth as well. Stellan Skarsgård as the Baron. Stoked on that. He's great. Stoked, stoked on that. Oscar Isaac is the Duke. Also stoked on that. Same. Oh, I'm an Oscar Isaac stan. Love yeah. Oscar Isaac. Yeah, he's really good. I don't know the character that plays Peter. David, you know, say his last name? Desmalkian? Uh, I don't know. He seems fine. Josh Brolin is Gurney Halleck. Uh, he's going to have to be able to sing, and I've never heard him sing in a movie before. So for me, for <laughs> uh, me, they'll get a studio musician in and then dub it, right? I guess. For me, this is the other one where I started to really get worried because. So in the books, Gurney Halleck is, I had to look up the exact phrasing. He's described as, quote, an ugly lump of a man. Yeah. And, and central to the character of Gurney Halleck is that he is physically hideous. He's continually described as ugly, as kind of off-putting. And, it, and it's important because in this world of eugenics, all of the nobles are incredibly beautiful. Lady Jessica, Oscar, all the Atreides, they're all described as having these perfect aquiline features. And in the later books, Gurney and Jessica actually fall in love, which you know, part of what's interesting about that is that this character who's always described as hideously ugly ends up with this complex, perfectly beautiful woman. You can't cast Josh Brolin for that. Yeah. Does he have the scar? Dude, or let's just say, or Patrick fucking Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> just, just to point out, in the, in the Lynch movie, that's what I'm referring to. Patrick Stewart is the guy that, that Eric just referred to as like gross, you know? Yeah, Which he the, should be. I'm just saying, like, come on. Yeah, Dude, I don't think he has the, the scar. Ask the people in your lives who are attracted to men if Josh Brolin is an ugly man like that. Dude, I'm not attracted to men, and I can clear that up for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like what worried me about that, and you know, starting to like get more and more into my criticisms is it just seems it seems there's a lot that we know about this movie so far that I would describe as sloppy and and sloppy in a way that's kind of unnecessary. And so a character who wanted, like, if you, if you asked me, like, describe Granny Halleck, and I had to say five things, one of them would be ugly, because it's how he's always referred to. And, and instead, we get, like, the most attractive hunky man ever. So that, there's a bunch of things like that where I'm, I'm like, not sure. I don't have a lot of confidence in the respect for the source material. Dude, anyway. I'd, be, I'd be fine with him being Hollywood handsome if they at least got the scar right, but he has no scar. Well, have we, sorry, I'm, I'm behind on this one, but have we seen how he's depicted? Because it does bring to mind these transformations like, you know, like Danny DeVito as the penguin. Like, okay, yeah, it's Danny DeVito, but he's got so much makeup and costume and everything that there's something else going on. Have we actually seen how these actors appear in the film? Yeah, yeah we have. And maybe that's like... Oh, and they just, they still look cute and like, it's all good. Yeah, he looks, yeah. he just looks hot. But, you know, we, we get a good look at him in the training sequence. And maybe this is a good segue into wardrobe. Because you said something, Jamie, earlier about, maybe you could sort of like reiterate this, but about the problem you had with the Lynch film was the wardrobe was a little bit too familiar. Yeah, totally. My Yeah, the thing about the Lynch film is it felt so near future to me instead of crazy distant future. Yeah. Like a remix and evolution of fashion, which is what we see every couple decades, rather than like, I don't even know what you're wearing. 
you know, like let's, if we took a caveman and put him in today's society, he wouldn't even understand the materials that we're using to create clothing, let alone the style, you know? So I just felt like in a real 8,000 years in the future sci-fi world, clothing would have holograms and floating elements and it would change the shape of our body and one arm would be detached with wires. Like who even knows? I, I couldn't agree more. And this is one of the major aesthetic problems I have with the movie. The knowledge is the clothing look familiar. And this is no hyperbole. If Paul walked down the street from me in Brooklyn right now, where I'm recording this, wearing what he wears in the training sequence, I wouldn't even break my train of thought. Like I'd still no be out like an email I had to send later. Like it, I might it, vaguely think he's in a band. That's about yeah. it. <laughs> it, looks, it looks just like trendy sort of hype beasty. Like, like the shirt that Gurney's wearing, like I'm pretty sure I saw it at Uniqlo. <laughs> like it, it's so, dis- it's disappointing <laughs> in a yeah, way that I, like really makes me sad. Yeah, it's like you're just a sort of seafaring hipster rather rather than a sci-fi prince of eight millennia. What's the word for thousands? Millennia is a hundred, right? Doesn't matter. Anyhow, yeah, no, please continue. Millennia is a thousand. Yeah. Millennia is a thousand. Okay, eight millennia in the future, we're not going to be wearing hipster button down seafaring vests. Although I do love Master and Commander. What a fucking good movie. <laughs> While we're on costuming, like, can we talk about the Oakley factory pilot still suit gloves? Yeah, go for it. And oh something. god, I'm out of the loop. What are you oh god? Oh my god. So Please there's fill this, me like, in. motorcycle slash tactical glove that has appeared in like a million sci-fi movies called the Oakley Factory Pilot. It's got this like set of like carbon fiber knuckles. And oh, so it's just like a thing that exists in the real world that's real easily world. transmuted into a nice movie prop. Yeah, it works on a lot of stuff, but not Dune because they use it in the one piece of Dune costuming that I think every every fan does not want you to fuck up, and that's the still suit. Like, oh if, yeah, if you, yeah, I was actually going to bring that up next, but yeah. Sorry to jump the gun on you, Jamie. No, no, no. I'm just going to say that's a good transition. But so t- tell me more, though. So you're saying that there's a recognizable commercial product available in a movie that takes place 8000 years in the future. <laughs> that's correct. Yeah, I'm I am. I am disappointed. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and not only is it is it in a movie that takes place 8000 years in the future, it's on the most iconic piece of costuming from that movie. Yes. And so, so Tristan has now brought up the still suit, which is essentially so, okay. So we've mentioned this planet Dune, which is, you know, the titular planet Arrakis where they produce the spice. It's a desert planet, absolutely devoid of water. And if you want to go there, you have to be moisturized in order to survive as a human. So they wear these suits that essentially are like recycling all of the water from your body. So as you sweat and you urinate and all this goes through, it filters it back out and you can drink it back in and you can stay hydrated. Sorry, guys, how long for days or weeks or quite a while, right? You'd lose a thimble full of water every five days. Yikes. Okay, so yeah, you can survive a tremendous amount of time wearing these suits. And so the design of these, both from an aesthetic point of view and like an implied technology point of view, is certainly something that is vivid in people's imaginations. So how do you guys feel about the uh, Lynchian version and what we've seen of Villeneuve's imagination of this? Part of the way they're described in the books is, okay, if you can imagine like, what is the closest thing on earth? Maybe like a a wetsuit if you're a diver or something. It would have to be something like that that's so form-fitting that it almost becomes a part of you because how else would you explain 
that you're only losing a thimble full of water. So you're imagining basically, basically a perfect water reclamation system, which acts as almost like a second layer of skin. And the still suit is further described as a combination of catch pockets. So as perspiration and moisture in the breath is caught, it accumulates at different pockets around the body. And there, there's a kind of pumping action, which is described as just the act of walking is powering all these internal pumps, which are then powering the rest of the system and moving the moisture around. So I always imagined something that kind of looked like the Lynch version of the still suit, a kind of biomechanical, skin-tight, semi-alien, flexible, semi-rigid structure. And then there's a, there's another important part in the books where when Paul first puts the suit on, there's a prophecy among the Fremen that when the Messiah comes, he'll know your ways. And so when Paul first puts the suit on, he's with the other Atreides soldiers. They all put their suits on. And they bungle it because they'd never worn one before. And so Stilgar's walking around. And when he gets to Paul, uh, Paul's it's Kynes. suit. Hmm? Kynes. Oh, you're right. Yeah, 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 it is Kynes. We should talk about Kynes in a moment, too. So you're right. It is Kynes. When Kynes walk, walks around and inspects all the Atreides, they all have their suits on incorrectly. And Paul's is fit perfectly. And, and he sort of remarks on this, that the, the suit is perfectly fit. So that's where my head is at. It's got to be something that feels and acts almost like a, a second skin. Okay, fast forward to the, the still suits we see in the trailers. It, it just looks like it's like loose fitting, a bunch of like random parts. It has like a very Burning Man aesthetic. Yeah. Again, just it, it looks like it's meant to look cool, but not to be functional. And certainly it's not in keeping with the still suits that are described in the books. My biggest problem, and I, and I agree with with a lot of what you just said there. My biggest problem was the depiction of them as helmetless, because if you think of the body as a closed system, the head is perspiring, it is breathing out, it is a source of, for instance, all of our breathing out, and a heck of a lot of moisture is breathed out. So you're essentially leaving this giant hole in what essentially needs to be a closed system. And if you're talking about a thimbleful over five days, I don't even know if that's physically possible. It may not be. But if it is, it certainly requires you to have no big open hole in one part of your enclosed system. That's that's correct, Jamie. And in the books, they have a hood that like sort of like tightly, kind of like the, the undersuit on an astronaut that like kind of pats like oh, around. Yeah. I mean, and I would assume you, it you has to work goggles and some sort of like additional face patch to cover up the rest of your face. Yeah, I feel like it would have to be a full bubble helmet or at least a nose and mouth mask in the order reason, to have any efficacy. The reason efficacy. why it's not a full bubble helmet is because it'd get too hot because you're remember you're on a, a desert environment. The other thing that is described in the books is that they have detachable gloves that form seals at the all of the all the boots and gloves components of, of the of the still suit have like a, basically like hermetic seals around them that, that can be attached and, and applied. But the Fremen actually prefer to wear them gloveless and rub the juice of the creosote bush into their hands, which makes their hands not sweat, but it keeps their hands free for combat and, and for like complex dexterous stuff, because apparently the gloves are a little bit bulkier from what I remember reading. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, again, to get back to the too familiar as a general critique of Denise's film, upcoming film, what we've seen of it so far anyway. Like I just Googled the, just to remind myself, I'm looking at the still suit design right now. Again, maybe without the nose piece, 
it, it sort of looks like me and my friends about to go riding dirt bikes in the desert. It's totally, it doesn't look like it has any function. It just looks like kind of like hipster desert wear. And then click over to the Lynchian still suits, which seem as though they're these alien biomechanical structures that are form-fitted to and built upon the musculature of the person that wears them. So, yeah, that, yeah. Th- those have been a big disappointment. Yeah, yeah, totally. The thing I like about the Lynchian ones, too, is they look... They look, they're form fitting, but they're also like a little bit clumsy. Like they a little bit feel defined by some sort of chemical or physical process that has to occur. You know what I mean? They're not totally just designed to style. They have a little bit of awkwardness, which feels right. You know what I mean? Like a, like a scuba diving setup is really, really effective, but is a little bit awkward, you know, because it has like the tanks would be smaller if you could choose and the wetsuit would be simpler if you could choose. The other thing that like bugs me out about the costuming decisions, especially on the Atreides in the movie, when we first see the Atreides landing on Dune, they're all wearing sci-fi plate armor. They kind of look like the the Gordon Freeman HEV suit from Half-Life, but gray. Oh, and shout out to Half-Life. That's to me. Yeah, shout outs to Half-Life. Uh, to me, that's a massive miss in in terms of understanding the lore of Dune because the most common ubiquitous piece of tech amongst the nobles is one of the first things that we we interact with are ray shields, personal ray shields that essentially create like a force field around you while you're walking around. So why would they need to wear big, heavy plate armor? They never are described as wearing like battle gear is always described as like a shield belt, some like holsters for your swords, maybe like a projectile weapon, like a mala pistol, or if you're fighting unshielded enemies, a laser gun. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And also, and when you look that other, far, the, the other thing oh, too, because I've heard I've heard a lot of people say like, "Oh, well, they heard about the." Uh, I just I need to clarify this for a couple friends who have this argument with <laughs> nerd defense. A, a lot of people say like, "Oh, well, they're they're wearing plate armor because on Dune, the ray shields attract and an anger worms," and the Atreides didn't know that when they first landed on Dune. They had no idea. Thufir Hawat, the mentat of the Atreides house, finds out moments before he's captured by the Harkonnens that this is a thing. It's yeah, not but, common knowledge. Yeah. They, they would be wearing their ray shields. They wouldn't be wearing this big bulky armor. And uh, it's another moment where the, the movie kind of just ignores the books entirely. Absolutely. And I mean, look, some people believe that civilizations and technology are cyclical that like for instance there may have been an advanced civilization before us and they got to a certain point and then they all died and then we had to start back out as cavemen but if you don't believe that which i'm not sure that's realistic eight thousand years in the future even just material science would mean that your armor doesn't need to be thick i mean shit look at our own just a hundred years of history you go from the 40s and 50s where you have bakelite plastic it's like a brittle plastic that can be looks cool but doesn't have a lot of properties and now it's 2021 we can 3d print something in a couple hours that has more flexibility heat resistance and you know temperature resistance than anything you can imagine at that time so eight thousand years in the future a solid plate of something that is paper thin would probably be stronger than the the, you know the thickest ceramic armor that seal team six can wear today so even just again from that perspective of the time and the technology that's amazing and then add on to that the layer that you mentioned tristan of some kind of force field or something that goes beyond just the uh, sort of physical mass i agree it's too much tied to what we did today or 30 years ago 
Yeah, for sure. Okay, so one one idea that I thought was really interesting in the Dune books and movie and everything was this idea of Mentats, which, by the way, for any of you Fallout fans, if you wonder where the term Mentats came from, it was Dune. That's where that <laughs> the thing comes from. So a Mentat, put very, very simply, is essentially a human computer. And this was really interesting to me because that's what the word computer originated as. In the early days of the space program and in, in several technological fields, a computer was a human who computes, a person who could really do math very well and was accurate. So, you know, in John Glenn's flight, in a lot of the early days of the U.S. space program, if you've seen hidden figures, you know the story of people who were computers. So in the world of Dune, we have people who essentially are computers. But guys, if you want to fill in our audience a little bit about why that is, it's it's something of a different reason. But there's some interesting parallels there. Yeah, so I forget what the exact timeline of the Butlerian Jihad is. But basically, I read the the Brian Herbert Dune prequels, which are based on Frank's. Brian Herbert is is Frank Herbert's son, so he his his son wrote all the prequels based on his father's notes. They're not as good, in my opinion. The original six are are so just so so well well written. Oh, we got it backwards. He's the son. He has to write the sequels. He can't write the prequels. That's for no, the father he, to do. He wrote, he wrote the Butlerian Jihad is the... Is no, the no, prequel. no. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm <laughs> saying he did it wrong. If uh, you're the son, you got to write the next thing. You can't write the previous thing. That's for grandpa to do. I think he also does the next thing as well. Oh, well, I, I haven't read the, the, the June <laughs> future books or whatever they're called. Anyway, dad jokes aside, you were saying. <laughs> um, yeah, so on the one on the Butlerian Jihad, and I, I read this one like years ago and, and didn't pick it back up again because it just didn't kind of hold me quite as much. As I recall, it all goes down to this one woman whose last name is Butler. Robots mess with her personally and she goes on a, a wild campaign to to eradicate them. But it's not just her. Robots are, are kind of a, a huge problem. They've, they've a lot of the conversations we're having now about how AI will sort of geometrically out, outthink humans is exactly how, how Frank Herbert imagined going. We, we were very quickly enslaved by robots in, in the Dune setting. Uh, and uh, basically, a lot of what the, the noble houses start doing is they start prolonging their life by putting their brains in robot bodies. And this is actually where like the beginning of the, the beef between the Atreides and, and the Harkonnen starts is over some i forget the exact details some 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 squabble but uh we fight a war against against machines we lose horrifically the robots nuke earth and then there's a long played out crusade jihad whatever you want to call it led by a rebellion human faction that ends up winning and and destroying the the robotic minds that are you know at the core of this of this war and then as a result of that people in order to to do crazy long range space navigation, all the calculations you'd need to do. I mean, think about how many things in your basic life are run by a computer and it, it still have to essentially get done. And so Mentats, the, the Mentat core is uh, is born. Uh, Mentats are, are people who are just trained to think like a computer. They're, they're conditioned from birth. Uh, a Mentat can't know that they're going to be a Mentat until they're like ready for an additional layer of, of physical conditioning. And then once it happens to them, they, they never, they're forever changed. They see the world as like a, a complex equation that they're always trying to balance. And once you put, uh, you, you give a Mentat data and it gives you possibilities. And so they're, they're like the most trusted advisor to, to anyone they work with. Uh, Thufir Hawat is Duke Leto's Mentat, and he's kind of like, he's so old, he's he's survived three generations of Atreides' uh, leadership. And then, and he's contrasted with Peter DeVry, uh, who is sort, sort of like what happens when you take Mentat conditioning and, and turn that person also into like a sadistic serial killer. 
And, and so the, there's some really interesting contrast explored between those two characters. My favorite part about the Mentats is you touched on it, that Mentats in their training don't know they're being trained to become Mentats. And so in the lore, what happens is if, if a young child is being groomed to become Mentat, then the, the kind of caretakers in that person's life will be doing in subtle ways these kind of conditioning exercises to shape their mind toward mentat abilities. And then there's this critical moment that happens at some point in their life where their mind is kind of shattered in a way. And as it reforms itself, it becomes a mentat. And it's kind of like a Zen idea of enlightenment where you can't ever get it by striving toward it. You have to you have to sort of like set up the conditions for a mentat to exist. And then a mentat mind will either catalyze or or it won't. But the mentat themselves can't know what's happening to them. Because if they if you like try to think yourself into becoming a thinking computer, you'll never get there. You have to like almost be like tricked in a way into becoming one. Yeah, totally. And there's a really great scene where Leto in the first book tells Paul that he's been conditioned to be a mentat. And Paul has this moment like, well, wait, if you tell me that I'm not going to be a man, and then his whole, he's like, oh, no. And then his whole like world shatters because he realizes that, yeah, he's a mentat. Well, there's two things I think we should hit on before we wrap up because we're already at, at 80 minutes here. One is I just want to touch briefly on the way that gender is handled because certainly it's something that we've seen on Earth history, you know, generation to generation, eon to eon, civilization to civilization. We change the way that gender affects our society. So in Dune, there are some pretty strong gender lines drawn. So I wonder if you could react to that and just think about the way that that is important to the story, the way that it explores humanity, and how that might relate to some casting choices that have been made in the new film. Yeah, for sure. Gender and sex are pretty core to all of the societies and factions we see Throughout Dune, we can we can run down them. The, the Bene Gesserit, of course, are an all-female faction. The Leilaxu are an all-male faction. And Yeah, so, sorry to interrupt, but can you illuminate for the audience who, who might not for, be familiar, is there an internal reason for why one is all-female and one is all-male? Or, like, is there a, a sense? Because I know there's, for our audience, there's a, a manipulation of bloodlines, for example, is one thing in the feudalistic society they have. They might make somebody only conceive women, uh, only conceive girls as, as uh, baby girls as children so that they have no male heirs going on a, you know, a, a sort of old age sexist way of inheriting a kingdom through bloodlines. But um, yeah, just to throw that out there, like, how, how does, what is the meaning of these gender specific groups? Oh, sure, you nailed yeah. it. That's exactly it. Yeah, go ahead, Justin. The, the Bene Gesserit all women because by being all women, they can control the line of succession of a, of a noble house. Because it's a feudal system, inheritance is 100% passed in that like weird, sexist, old-fashioned, medieval way. Yeah, the, the pointless power of the penis. No one, no one knows why, but <laughs> there and it is. The Landsdrad, which is the, again, the kind of imperium, is patriarchal. And so, especially at, at its military wing, it's always described as an all-male military in contrast to the Bene Gesserit. But Tristan, there's actually an even more explicit reason on a technical level why the Bene Gesserit are all female. Right. 
Yes. Which is the Bene Gesserit, when they become Reverend Mothers, they go, so a Reverend Mother is kind of like a high level Bene Gesserit. And the way you become a Reverend Mother is you go through what's called the spice agony, where you take a, an overdose of spice and you unlock through your DNA the memories of all the women that came before you. And this is described as happening through the Bene Gesserit on their maternal lines because women have two X chromosomes. So within the Dune universe, uh, the Bene Gesserit can unlock the memories of all the women who came before them because women have two X chromosomes, which gets into the, the whole reason they want to develop a Quizot's Haderach is they suspect that if there was a man strong enough to survive the spice agony, then that man would be able to see both his male memories and his female memories because men have X and Y chromosomes. And they were never able to do this because in the Dune universe, men are not mentally strong enough to withstand the spice agony. So they've tried many times to give the spice to a man and it kills them. Only women can survive the spice agony. So the whole thousand-year project of the Kwisatz Haderach is to create a male who's mentally powerful enough to withstand the spice agony, and then through his X and Y chromosomes will unlock all of his ancestral memories, and then also will gain the ability to see into the future. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I totally forgot that the reason why there are no Bene Gesserit men is because every time they try to, one, one try, gets far enough to do the spice trip is they die. Yeah, like literally, literally men can't be Bene Gesserits because it kills them to transform into a Bene Gesserit. Jamie, to answer your question, there are both social and technical reasons in the Dune universe. Some of those societies are patriarchal. The Bene Gesserit have like a, a technical geneticist reason. The Leilaxu, who are these kind of everyone's favorite creepy villain mutants, they they are an all-male society. And I don't even want to give away the... Uh, it's like my favorite spoiler in the book. I can't even say it. But you do at some point find out what happened to the Leilaxu women. I don't want to say it. It's one of the, the great reveals of the books, but something crazy happened there. And then and on and on and on. Like the mentats are are mostly male. And, and I actually was looking this up before. It it appears that the reason why all the mentats are men is because any child who's identified as a potential mentat, if they're female, they get scooped up by the Bene Gesserit. So it's sort of like the reason why there's no female mentats is to be a female mentat is sort of to become a Bene Gesserit because all the most talented women become Bene Gesserits. So yeah, there's all these different factions and, and sort of social structures, but they're all really strictly adhering to gender lines within the Dune universe. Within the Fremen, there's also like a bunch of like really interesting delineation between men and women. The Fremen do reverend mothers too. In fact, a lot of Fremen culture is based on stuff that the Bene Gesserit Mescenaria Protectiva, which is like a core of Bene Gesserit spies who show up on a planet, implant like a bunch of like lore that will eventually become adopted by the locals as prophecies. And then if a Bene Gesserit shows up on that planet, they can just take advantage of those prophecy, existing prophecies to get like aid and support from those local factions. But even with like, Fremen women who aren't connected to the, the Bene Gesserit and aren't Reverend Mothers, they're sort of like seen as sources of wisdom, whereas like men are sort of like the destructive or collective arm of the, of the tribe. Like men go out and bring water, basically go out and do stuff. And the women plan the long-term well-being of the tribe. 
and the, the male leaders of a, of a Fremen siege always defer to a council of women. There, there's some pretty interesting scenes with like Stilgar and uh, the Reverend Mother who's sort of tied to, to his siege. Cool. So, guys, given all that we've just discussed about the gender politics and issues and realities inside the Dune fantasy universe, how do you feel about the casting for the upcoming film in terms of the gender of certain characters? Because there is at least one that has caused some kerfuffle online about a gender, what people are seeing as a gender swap. Yeah, for sure. This is one of those controversies that, like, fandoms exist for you know to get on like unnecessarily dense arguments online about like the casting of this kind of side character but basically what happened is there's a there's a character in the first dune book named Leet kinds and Leet kinds in the books is a man and in the upcoming film he was gender swapped as a woman and cast by a british actress named sharon Duncan Brewster. And um, so that's that's kind of like on its face what happens. And yeah, this this became a giant kerfuffle within the community. And people just kind of like drew lines in the sand and decided which side they were on. And well, I'll tell you, I'll put my cards on the table. I think this was a huge mistake. And uh, you know, I can go into why. But I think before saying why well, I think this is a bad idea, maybe... I would like to make an argument in favor of gender swapping because I don't have any issue with it just in general in fiction. And I think, I think there is actually a character that you can do this with that is the perfect and only choice. And I would say that character is Dr. Yue. And Tristan, we haven't talked about this yet, but yeah, I think, I think if you're, if you're the writer director team and you're thinking to yourself, I wish there was another woman in this movie, there is only one option. Because you can't, if you go down the main cast, you can't gender swap Lady Jessica. She's a Benny Jesuit. We talked about that. You can't Dude, gender I don't know swap. If you can, oh, yeah, you can. You can totally gender swap. You can totally gender swap Dr. Yui. Yeah. 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 Um, he's the only one. So you can't do Jessica. You can't do the Duke or Paul because they're Landstroud Nobles Patriarchal Society. For a similar reason, you can't do Thufur, Gurney, or Duncan because they're all military men within the Landstroud. The only member of the main cast that you can do is Yui. And so we should describe Yui. So Yui is a souk doctor. And I had to look this up to make it sure, but the souk doctors can be both male and female. And I think it's the only, you know, we just went down the list of factions. I'm pretty sure it's the only one, unless you can think of one, Tristan, that's totally egalitarian. Egalitarian in what way? In, in the way that there doesn't seem to be any indication in the books that a soup doctor must be a man or a woman. Yeah, just oh, just yeah. dependent on whoever is good for the job. Type yeah, totally. Shit. As far as I know, yeah, that, that is correct. In terms of whether or not you could gender swap Dr. Yui and have it still work in the Dune universe, I think like, I don't know if, if same-sex marriage is something that's condoned in the Dune universe. And I know Frank Herbert is like famously a little bit homophobic. So I don't know if that would be accurate or not. But like, I, as, a, as a modern person, I don't give a shit. Yeah, totally. Gender swap Dr. Yui. Uh, her in- incredibly like heartbroken when the Harkonnens take her wife, uh, who was a Bene Gesserit. Yeah, totally. That, that works. Yeah. yeah, and Tristan brought up same-sex marriage because Dr. Yui's motivations are his wife's been kidnapped. And I'm with you. Like, you could make it her wife or it's, I mean, even simpler, just make make Dr. Yue a woman and the Harkonnen kidnap her husband. You have the exact same motivation and it doesn't affect yeah. the story. 
story in any way. Uh, I don't know about that because him being able to uh, to truth sense, which he was taught by his Bene Gesserit wife, is an important plot point. Yes, Ooh. but I, I think all of these, I mean, honestly, I think both of the points you guys just made really drill down to the core of the issue, which is, does the story have gender in it as a fundamental issue of its plot? You know, so for for example, something that I, I love to point to in film history, and we already mentioned this film, but is Alien, the original Alien script, had zero genders in the script. All of those characters that you see on screen were written just as whoever, and it just so happened that when they cast and when, you know, when Ridley Scott came on, who they cast was a woman as this character, a man as that character, and so on. But the script had no opinion. And I think that in the case of Dune, the evolution of society into these gender castes and these separate society, you know, these separate groups is central to the story that's being told. And so that becomes a special case in terms of the issues of representation and voices and things like that. So that's really where it comes down to me is, is the story about gender or is, is it not? Because if it's not, you don't need to worry like Batman, for example, or Indiana Jones. I don't care if they're women. It makes no difference. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Jamie. And, and that's why I brought up UA. Maybe there is like some note there about truth sense. That's a good point, Tristan. But there isn't anything about UA's backstory that would preclude him from being a woman. Yeah. And a woman married to a Bene Gesserit? Sure, checks out. I think that would make perfect sense in the Dune setting. I think the yeah, reason why... powerful too. You'd be marrying rich. Yeah, totally. You'd have to be someone really important. And he, UA is. I think the reason why people are or deep Lord Dune fans are a little upset about Kynes being gender swapped specifically is the way that is Kynes' role in Fremen society. He's not he he is secretly the the leader, basically the leader of Fremen on the planet. And the way that works is he's essentially proven through martial combat and and leadership skills and and knowledge of the planet and a bunch of other other reasons why to the other male siege leaders why he's in charge of them and fremen men i don't even know if women can challenge other men for for positions of authority so the way that that kinds would have had to ascended to 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 power if kinds was a woman would have been completely different the character would be so the, the, it makes so many interactions with with Kynes and the other leaders of the sieges, and then also with the women who who are in, in charge of like advising them, and and also like have their own leadership positions in sieges. Very very confused. It might as well be a completely different character. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. But in the same way that I think UA would have been fine to do, I think Kynes is one of the characters that you you really don't want to do because Kynes is one of these. He's sort of like Tom Bombadil in that he's not, he's only in the book briefly, but he's, he's a fan favorite because he's so fascinating. So that the full bio for our listeners of Kynes, he's, his father, Pardo Kynes, was sent by the emperor to the planet to be a planetary ecologist and the judge of the change. The judge of the change kind of like is a peacekeeper amongst warring factions. These are explicitly described as father to son, patriarchal male institutions. And so right off the bat, if Leet is a woman, she wouldn't be the judge of the change based on the the rules of the society in the book. So like right away, it doesn't make any sense. But then the things that Kynes does in the book don't make sense if Kynes is a woman. For example, he goes on the, the Thopter ride with the Atreides military guys in one of the pivotal scenes when you see a sandworm for the first time. 
there's no way a woman is getting invited on that trip. This is a society where the military is composed 100% of men, and this is a full-on military exercise. And Kimes is sort of guiding it and leading the new Duke and Paul to see a sandworm. And not to mention, one of the, I think one of the most compelling reasons you brought up the other day, Tristan, why Kimes doesn't work as a woman is within Fremen society, women who are of noble birth and show special talents like that become Sayadinas, which are basically like reverend mothers within the Fremen sort of siege kingdoms. And so, yeah, Leet as a woman, the lore would go, is Stilgar's niece. Because in the books, Kynes marries Stilgar's sister, and Chani, Chani is their daughter. And so, I think I got all that right. Did I get all that right? I think family, so, yeah. Family tree? Yeah, so basically, Stilgar, as the leader of the siege, if his niece, a member of their family, you know, is born to him, she her role will be a Sayadina. She's not going to go off and work for the emperor as a planetary ecologist. Like none of that. It's it's one of those things where it's like it seems like a small thing until you dive into the lore, and then it, it just kind of like makes everything messy and unravels it again in this world. And and I was reading about some interviews about the leap casting and the the actress um, Sharon Duncan Brewster in an interview was talking about the role and she sort of ended by saying, well, why can't leap be a woman? And this gets back to my thing about casting Gurney Halleck. It, that to me just, it feels so careless and sloppy. Like yeah. there, you know, that, that comment, why can't leap be a woman? Well, there's, I mean, there's probably at least a dozen very clear reasons why leap, cannot be a woman in again in the world of dune in the year 10,000 implicit in that question is why can't a woman do anything a man can do on earth i'm totally with you but in in these societies that we've sketched out there are these very clear immutable rules and to just kind of throw one of them like that to the wayside arbitrarily again it kind of it's, it feels the same way the gurney casting feels. It feels the same way the still suit design feels. It feels like a sloppy, careless decision that didn't need to be made. And all of these things in aggregate, I think, are are setting up for a, a film that's going to be a lot weaker than it could have been. I honestly won't be too mad about it walking in like as a movie like, yeah, OK, whatever. But like deep down, I know it, it bugs me because it's not accurate. I think like one way I'd be really even more fine with it would be like if they actually do lean into the the, the lore and it's like, yeah, no, they're secretly a, a Sayadina. That's cool. And, and maybe like we get some stuff that's not in the books in the movie, which I mean, probably won't be as good. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's a weird, hard topic. Yeah, for sure. You know, I was talking about this with one of my friends who's on the other side of the issue and he was like, yeah, you know, it's not such a big deal. Like, listen, all the things you just you, you bring up, it's cool. Don't, you know. Denise will just, he'll just change all those things too. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, totally. Don't do that. You know, like, <laughs> like, like, I don't, I don't doubt that you can gender swap kinds and make it make sense by changing 30 other things. I'm saying as a lifelong Dune fan, I really don't, I don't want them to change 30 other things. You know, I know. I, we know that Dune is an incredible saga. We don't know that some, director's interpretation of dune is is going to be as good and so it seems like the the lowest risk move here is just be faithful in the adaptation yeah i mean on some level a story has to be about something can't be about everything 
Yeah. And if we want, you know, you can't take a story that takes place. I wouldn't even be specific. You can't take a story that takes place in some setting with some characters and make it be all things to all people. So on some level, I think Dune is about a certain structure of society. And that's the structure you have to write the story in. And if you violate that structure, even if that's something that feels comfortable to you as a writer in 2020 or 2021, it may not be something that can exist in the reality of the film. So, you know, I think that's something we have to take into consideration. I think we're getting way on on time here. So there's a couple of things I just want to talk about as a means to wrap up, guys. So, you know, we've we've commented a lot about the 2021 version of Dune that's that's going to come out. And by the way, for our listeners, that's October 1st, 2021. It should be on both streaming on HBO Max and in theaters. Tell me, guys, what are your hopes for the film? Even with all the criticisms, with the things that you're worried about, what are your hopes for this film across all categories, not just its accuracy to the book? I, I guess my biggest hope would be that all these criticisms I've, I've brought up are totally unfounded roll credits. And I'm like that, you know, that's, that's top 10 science fiction films ever made. And I guess specifically my hope there would be that it, it kicks off a new generation of Dune fans. Like I, I think that would be really wonderful. If, in the same way that Game of Thrones was, was always kind of, it was classically like the go-to neckbeard, like D and D basement dweller fantasy series, and yeah, then, now it's a gateway drug for fantasy fandom. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and like, yeah. and then it, it became a thing that the people that think they would never pick up a fantasy novel suddenly became fantasy fans and would have these dense conversations about whether or not that really was an ice dragon. Like, I, I, I love that when that happens, and and if this film is successful and it, it turns into a whole franchise and people get into dense, deep, hard sci-fi who never would have, I would think that would be a huge success. Dude, yeah. Literally everything you said. Yeah, 100% on board for all that. Additionally, I'm really excited, especially after seeing all the sort of in Blade Runner 2049, all the dream sequences and the, the really sensitive way that Denis Villeneuve handled the subconscious and themes of like dreaming. I'm really, really excited to see his take on a spice trip. Especially Paul's Paul's trial when he takes the the concentrated form of it. I'm so interested to see what that scene will be like. Awesome. Guys, the last thing I wanted to bring up here before we wrap is just as we look at the at the Dune story and all of the implications that that spice and intergalactic travel and all these kinds of developments had on humanity. What might you say in terms of what's your vision for how we avoid that kind of future? What might we do next to make sure that the galaxy doesn't end up as like a feudalistic system with emperors controlling the spice? Like, we don't know what the spice is going to be, but what should we do? Damn, that's a really, that's a really hard question to answer. Um, yeah, solve humanity, guys. Hurry up. Yeah. <laughs> I think like maybe settle a lot of our like international disputes and internal strife as a species before we we get to space. Not like before we get to space, but like get to space as a political entity. If we're part part of the like factionalization of Dune is that a lot I, I get the sense that like a lot of or I don't get the sense, it's literally in the lore. A bunch of religions head out on different like space crusades and form different footholds. And then a, a, and a bunch of corporations do that too. And a bunch of nations do that too. And I think 
if there was some sort, I don't know, unifying factor, maybe maybe that wouldn't go go quite the way it goes in Dune. But that's just a guess. I don't know. I, I read Dune and I, I dropped pretty pictures. I don't I don't know if I'm super qualified to answer that question. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. How do we avoid the Dune future? We sort of touched on this, but I think Dune is a lot of things. One of them is it's a it's a warning about concentrations of power. So you have this multi-planet empire ruled by four or five highly concentrated factions. And actually in the later books Book four ends with something called the scattering, where the god emperor, leader the second, essentially smashes his empire to pieces and casts all the various pieces of humanity out into the galaxy, severs all the ties amongst them, because the god emperor kind of realizes that humanity in becoming so centralized has stagnated. You know, and he criticizes the Bene Gesserit for their their inbred schemes. And so, yeah, if there's any kind of warning there, it's the future we currently see, unfortunately, about increasing inequality and increasing concentrations of power. Seems like anytime you you concentrate, whether it's a you know, a gene pool to continue the unfortunate eugenics themes of, of Dune or economic power or military power, you're building weakness into the system. And the the full sort of perverse ultimate form of that weakness we see in Dune. So hopefully a vision for humanity is is the complete opposite, a kind of decentralized, hybridized, stronger humanity where we don't have these overarching power structures where very few individuals wield power over so many. Yeah, I think that that'd do it. I just got a late breaking text from my wife. She says, tell all the Supercluster listeners that Miles Tag is the best character in the whole series and don't sleep on book five and six. So there, you heard it, everybody. Don't sleep on books five and six. Yeah, definitely awesome. don't. All right. So thank you, Eric and Tristan, so much for being on the podcast. I think we uncovered a lot of topics about Dune and surrounding Dune that are worth talking about. And there's probably 10 more episodes that we could do on that. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to check out other great space stories at supercluster.com. And remember that space is for everyone. 